everybody. It's Ellen Weatherford. And Christian Weatherford. And we're both back with Just the Zoo of Us, your favorite animal review podcast, where we take your favorite animals and we review them out of 10 in the categories of effectiveness, ingenuity, and aesthetics. We are not zoological experts, but we do a lot of research and we try our best to make sure we're presenting information from trustworthy sources. And Christian's back. I am. You have not been heard on this podcast for about four episodes now. You took a little bit of a holiday break. Yep. I would say we both did. You know, we were both not recording new episodes during that time. Mm-hmm. But it's so good to have you back. You've been sorely missed. It's good to be back. I say you've been missed. I haven't missed you. I, <laughs> I still live with you. <laughs> I while, see you every day. While I've been missing from the magic, I've been mere feet from the magic happening. <laughs> <laughs> it's true. Like what you can't hear in the guest episodes is you watching the baby in the background. Just running around <laughs> screaming from both of us. <laughs> you actually may be able to hear a little bit of it. If you, if you listen with the volume really high, you can probably hear it sometimes. Christian's really been here all along, just in the background. Mm-hmm. The phantom of the podcast. Yep. If you play it backwards, <laughs> you'll hear me screaming in backwards. <laughs> Well, we've had a lot to scream about over the last four weeks. It has been a time. (laughs) It's been turbulent. But listen, we're here. Mm -hmm. We're back in the saddle with another great episode. Yeah. It's going to be really good. Christian, you are up first this week. You're coming back in guns blazing. Yes. (laughs) So we had since solicited for more animals, yes. We did, yes. Yes. For 2022, which it is now. New year, new species. Yes. Not new. (laughs) Oh, no, this is not like a fresh brand new species that just evolved. (laughs) This week, I bring the bull shark. So excited about this. And I included the pronunciation, Carcharhinus lucas. Carcharhinus? Yes. That sounds cool. It is. So this species was submitted by our friend Rob Van Eck. Thank you, friend. Thank you. And I'll be pulling information from Animal Diversity Web and National Geographic. This is probably a more well-known species of shark, but just to give a quick description. So first of all, sharks are fish. They live in the ocean for the most part. Foreshadowing. Oh, boy. Okay. Um, So they're not 100%. Not all of them. Oh, interesting. And no bones. No bones. <laughs> Nary a bone to be found. <laughs> As the Florida Aquarium. Nope, never mind. What? Gonna- oh, <laughs> the Florida Aquarium, their invertebrate like touch tank is called a no bone zone. We talk about it every day. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, the sharks are in the no bone zone, but they're not invertebrates. So sharks have skeletons, but they're not made of bone in the same way that ours are. Right. Cartilage. Yeah. So this shark has a short snout, um, which is different from other sharks that have a very elongated snout. Like, think of a great white shark, a long snout. I wouldn't have called it a long snout. I guess relative to this snout. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) Like a pug. (laughs) Right. (laughs) It has light to dark gray on the top or dorsal side and white on the bottom or ventral side. So we see this a lot with sharks and other fish. So this two-tone pattern is so that it's harder to see from top and below. Right. right? Because when you're looking from the top of it, you're looking down into ever-darkening water. Yeah. (laughs) And then if you're looking up at it, you're seeing like a bright area, particularly in daytime. It's blending in with either the darkness of the water below it or the brightness of the sky above it, depending on which way you look at it. All falls apart if you happen to be looking at it while it's doing a barrel roll. Because then you're like, oh, no, what's that? Sky dark, (laughs) sky dark. 
so to get into the size of them, because that's a big thing with sharks. It's, yeah. You know, when you think about how, how big is it? Wide variety of sizes mm-hmm. in sharks. So with this species of shark, it is such that the females are larger. Go girl. Right. Girl boss. Females on average are 111 kilograms and 242 centimeters long. That's 245 pounds and eight feet long. That's huge. Yes. It's very big. Males are 95 kilograms and 228 centimeters long. And that is 209 pounds and seven and a half feet. That's still pretty big. Yes. So those are averages, but the largest ones have been around 340 centimeters long and 450 kilograms, which is 11 feet long and a thousand pounds up. Oof. Yeah. And it seems like the largest ones have been pregnant. Oh, okay. Yeah. Sure. Like, yeah. but still, wise, I guess. Huge. Do you still call that one shark? <laughs> is that still the largest shark? <laughs> they are found along the coasts of the U.S., Mexico, Central and South America, Africa, India, and Australia. And they're found in the estuaries and rivers in those areas as well. Okay. Yes. Freshwater yes. transition. So you mentioned that they're found in the Americas as well. Yes. So we've got these in our neck of the woods. We do. We sure do. Taxonomic family Carcharinidae, which is known as the Requiem sharks. <gasps> what? Right. <laughs> requiem sharks? It's a cool name, right? Did you say Requiem? Yes, Requiem. Wow. What a beautiful anime sounding <laughs> name, doesn't it? Wait, hold on. Requiem sharks is going to be my band name. I need us to like hold off on publishing this so I can claim that real quick. Nice. That name may be a reference to the French word for shark. Do you know what it is? Requin. Yes. Yep. Beautiful word. Love that. The French name for this species actually translates to bulldog shark. <laughs> oh, yeah. Okay. You messaged me because you thought this was funny. It yeah. was like, requin bulldog. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry to our French listeners. I know y'all are out there. Y'all are probably <laughs> mad at me. I'm sorry. The notable evolutionary relatives in that family are tiger sharks, also black tip reef sharks. Mm. There's many others. Those are the ones that kind of stood out. Tiger sharks are feisty, huh? Yeah. Got a little attitude to them. Mm-hmm. So I'm going to get right into it. Our first category is effectiveness. And this is talking about physical attributes. I'm giving a 9 out of 10. That's very good. Yeah. This is a cool shark. So as I alluded to, my biggest thing here is their ability to survive in both salt and fresh water. Yeah, what's that about? You don't usually hear about freshwater sharks. Yeah. Not to say that they don't happen. It's just that you don't hear about them. Right. So with these guys they migrate into the fresh waters from the ocean mm. so they're coming from the ocean into like the mouths of rivers that you know dump into the ocean and estuaries and that sort of thing and, sure and they've been found hundreds of miles upriver. oh wow yes. so it's like not even in the brackish zone anymore no <laughs> fully fresh water so bull sharks have been found as far up the mississippi river as southern illinois Whoa, that's way up there. Hundreds of miles. <laughs> Watch out, Illinois. <laughs> Y'all thought sharks were not a problem. You thought you didn't have to worry about sharks. Got bad news. Yeah. And kind of in part of my research, I found it hasn't been scientifically proven, but there are stories of them being found in the Great Lakes. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> that gets into like, I feel like there's a very, very sort of rich cryptozoological right. element to the Great Lakes region. I feel mm-hmm. like there are a lot of like stories of yeah. stuff in the Great Lakes, right? That's never been documented. Yeah, it's pretty unlikely, though, especially outside of the warmest parts of the year, because mm. uh, it gets way too cold for them there. Yeah, doesn't it? Don't the lakes freeze? Some of it, I think. Yeah. Yeah. 
I mean, maybe you're going to tell me, but I, w- I wouldn't think a shark would be able to survive that. No, these and these sharks are usually found in temperate, subtropical, and tropical waters. Yeah. Usually. They like it toasty. Yeah. So I want to talk about that ability to survive in freshwater. And this has to do with salt retention. Okay. So all sharks, like humans, require a certain level of salt in their bodies for their cells to function properly, right? Okay. For sharks, their salt levels would get too low or diluted if they were in freshwater. Mm-hmm. So- with salt water, something that has more salt has the ability to will kind of try to get an equilibrium with what it's in, right? Yeah. So it loses salt to the surrounding freshwater normally. But bull sharks have special adaptations that let them retain salt and recycle it in their kidneys. Oh, so they're not losing it to the water around right. them. Right. They're holding on to the salt that they that they have. Wow. Usually, I feel like we've talked about a lot of like desert animals mm-hmm. that have adaptations to retain water. And it sounds like they're doing the opposite. Right. <laughs> like, like, <laughs> like retaining the salt, not the water. <laughs> yeah. That's really interesting. It is. So that's a huge adaptation right because uh most other sharks cannot do this right and the big advantage to being able to do this is the reason they're thought to go into fresh water in the first place and it's to give birth so a lot of their nurseries are found in these estuaries and rivers close to the ocean so they go into these rivers and give birth or mm. and even part of the mating cycle sometimes they'll give birth into this freshwater nursery and there's fewer predators around right yeah stuff in these freshwater systems doesn't get that big because these, these sharks are born two feet long they're just little yeah. <laughs> I mean, well, they're little, but that's way bigger than a lot of stuff that lives yeah. in like a freshwater river. Yeah. So yeah, that's the big advantage to, to to having that. That's a good idea. You know, like have your babies somewhere where it's safe. You're not going to be having yeah. your babies out in the middle of the ocean right. where there's all sorts of abominations out there ready <laughs> to snap your babies up. So yeah, they're they're born in these areas, and then they'll they'll get bigger, and then when the season changes, it gets colder, they'll go back out into the ocean. I feel like a lot of animals do this. Like come in. I feel like estuaries are a really important nursery area for lots of otherwise marine Mm. animals like manatees right do the same thing where they come in to have their babies and then they go back out to sea i mean it's a good idea you know like come into a smaller area it's kind of like moving to the suburbs (laughs) because you got kids Yeah. (laughs) my next point of course is their teeth Mm -hmm. (laughs) both sharks are known for sharp pointy teeth yes no exception here um they have a triangular kind of jagged teeth oh i love serrated teeth Mm -hmm. it's very cool yep Ripping and a tearing. Yep. And like most sharks, you know, they have several rows of these and they'll go through many, many teeth throughout their lifetime. Yeah. It's like a conveyor belt of mm-hmm. teeth. Pretty likely to find these on the beach. They're different from other shark teeth, like sand tiger sharks uh, that have very thin and pointy teeth, right? Oh, yeah. These are more broad, but okay. not great white broad. Uh, the next thing is their skin. So another common thing among sharks, their skin is covered in placoid scales or denticles. You thought they were done with the teeth in their mouth. Guess again. More teeth. Yes. Um, so imagine overlapping scale mail, basically, but also toothy. You said scale mail? Yeah. Like armor? Yeah. <laughs> um, so great protection there, but it's also thought to be hydrodynamic. Yeah. yeah. Wetsuits for swimmers. Like competitive mm-hmm. swimmers are, are made with a very similar texture that's inspired by yeah. shark scales. Yeah. I think we talked about these kind of scales with the whale shark. We've talked about it a lot. Yeah. It well, comes up all the time. Well, <laughs> whale shark comes to mind because we, we, we found out that they're, it's on their eyes partially. Right. Yes. Yeah. They have like a turret that's like covered in teeth. Yeah. It's horrible. It is denticles, right? Not yeah. denticles. De- <laughs> Why would it be? 
I always have that thought. What if this is pronounced like Hercules? (laughs) It's like Hercules is literally the only word that we say like that. (laughs) And it has really thrown you for a loop. (laughs) What if? (laughs) Wait, hold on. Hyperbole is another one. Yeah. Yeah. So you got to stay on your toes with these these words. Yep. Denticles. (laughs) You know how an octopus has all these tentacles? (laughs) Oh man! <laughs> Moving on. Uh, next point is they have a good sense of smell. They use pheromones to attract and detect mates. Actually, good idea. And this next piece I was pretty interested in is their hearing because I have some interest in the physics behind sound and such. So they have an efficient hearing range at the four hundred to six hundred hertz range, but the total range could be from a hundred to fifteen hundred hertz. But that's still pretty small because um, that's not even the full range of the notes on a piano. I learned a little bit about humans because I, I wanted something to compare to right. with the human hearing range. So human hearing has a much larger range, especially in water. Really? Yes. I wouldn't have expected them to have a larger range. Me neither. So according to the National Institute of Health, which is in the U.S., humans can hear up to 200,000 hertz or 200 kilohertz in water thanks to bone conduction. Oh, bone conduction. Yes. The thing sharks don't have. <laughs> it's all coming together. Put a mark in the L column. <laughs> it's, like, it's like bull sharks 100, humans 1. <laughs> so this is interesting because the way human hearing normally works in air is, you know, sound is a vibration of air that reaches your eardrum that then vibrates the bones in your middle ear. Whereas what happens in water is it kind of bypasses all that and the water directly vibrates the bone behind your ear. Oh, wow. Yeah. It just skips the whole ear process. Mm -hmm. But even in air, our hearing range is 20 to 20,000 hertz. That's still pretty good. Yeah. But that makes me wonder, that range of hearing probably isn't super useful because that's actually a range very similar to dolphins in terms of hearing. Yeah, but dolphins are doing a lot of work with their hearing. Yeah, they're doing like the, you know, echolocation. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Sharks, not so much. Yeah. So I guess it's complimentary. Like if the hearing without being able to produce sounds at that range is. Right. Cause they're not making sounds at each other. Right. right? So they're not like communicating with mm. each other with sound. So why would it matter? Yeah. Cause what they're listening to for is, you know, the sounds of a thrashing fish or some sure. other. Sure. But they, they have other ways of detecting that. Right. Like sharks have like mm-hmm. electroreception and yeah. smell. And mm-hmm. like they have other ways to tell that something's moving near them. They don't yeah. necessarily need to hear it. Yeah. And then my next point for effectiveness is just large. You're big. Know, <laughs> being large and in charge helps in the ocean. You're big. <laughs> <laughs> As we've discussed with several other very large aquatic animals. And, th- and stuff gets so big in the ocean yep. where you're not weighed down by gravity. You have the freedom to get as big as you want out there. <laughs> yeah. It's the Wild West. Yeah. The buoyant force is a, a big time buff. And then my final point is their diet because of how wide it is. So they mainly eat bony fish, rays, and smaller sharks, including their own species. Okay, not so discriminant in their <laughs> dietary choice. So that's one, I think, drawback to the nurseries is, uh, yeah, there's no other, you know, freshwater predators there, but you still have other bull sharks. Yeah, I was going to say, around. except for me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's like the only thing that can cut a diamond is a... 
another <laughs> diamond. It's like the only thing that can take down a bull shark is another bull shark. Yeah. It's probably some other stuff too, I would bet. Yeah. <laughs> um, they also have to worry about being eaten by other larger sharks, right? Sure. So, and to a lesser extent, their diet includes smaller mammals, birds, mollusks, crustaceans, and turtles. Get them. Yeah. Chomp, chomp. You have to be pretty tough to be able to chomp through a turtle. Yep. It's like they got that bite for it. Mm-hmm. Um, it's them and tiger sharks that are known for that. That in itself is very impressive mm-hmm. to be able to eat a turtle. Yeah. So moving on to our next category, ingenuity. So this is talking about smart things, methods, tool use. Pro strats. Uh, yep. Given a 7 out of 10, I couldn't find very many specific cases of intelligence. But So the first thing I want to talk about is they often mistake humans for large prey. The bull shark is in the top three species of sharks most likely to kill someone. It's up there with tiger sharks and the great white shark. Mm. It's mostly because of where they're found. They're usually close to shore or in freshwater bodies where they're not expected. Out of all shark attacks, they they make up a, a good number of them. As with any shark, if you see a shark... The absolute best thing you can do is just give it plenty of space and yep. leave it alone, mm-hmm. right? Like the most common interaction, I guess, between like unsuspecting humans and mm-hmm. sharks, if there is a bite, is that it's like an exploratory bite where they think you might be prey and they right. take a little bite mm-hmm. and then they realize you're not prey and you're not something they're interested in at all. And right. then they leave you alone and they swim away. Yeah. Right. Because remember, like we talked about how good they are at detecting what's in their environment. Mm-hmm. Like they know you're there, you know, like if they wanted to come and eat you right away, they would just do it. Yeah. But they don't. Yeah, it just sometimes that exploratory bite is enough. It happens, but not Mm -hmm. very often. It's one of those you're more likely to get struck by lightning, which also happens all the time. (laughs) (laughs) It's not their fault. No. This is their home. Mm -hmm. And they're known for doing a headbutt before they bite. Okay. To kind of go with that bull motif. <laughs> oh, gosh, that makes sense. Well, yeah. the, the name bull shark probably is, t- is talking about how you know squat and stocky they are. But uh, what I found was an interesting relationship with Remora. <gasps> I love Remora. Yeah. So, these, so cool. So these are the long sucker head fish uh, that you'll find on lots of sharks and other uh other large fish that manta rays yeah. and whale sharks and you'll find them dangling behind pretty much any big old fish yep so a lot of times they're there to eat scraps right mm-hmm. with the bull sharks at least the bull sharks know that when they have parasites and they're ready to be cleaned they'll slow down their swim speed and raise their head to indicate that readiness mm. and the remora will like swim up and start cleaning uh, by eating the parasites off the shark's body including inside its mouth Oh, that's so brave. Yeah. <laughs> wow, the trust you got to put in that shark to be sticking your big old sucker head right on in there. I mean, that, that has to speak to being very valuable as a you know, parasite cleaner. Cause, True. Because they think, do, what do I value more, a quick snack or something to eat the, the parasites? <laughs> right. I remember when I was talking to Ikai T about wrasses, one of the mm-hmm. things we talked about was cleaner wrasses. And about how their dynamic in the ecosystem seems to be just so widely accepted by, like, every other fish in their ecosystem that, mm-hmm. like, nobody crosses that line. Like, nobody goes against... Like, off-limits. Like, <laughs> right. They're, they're completely off-limits. Like, nobody messes with the cleaner wrasses. Like, no matter how big of a predator you are, you <laughs> just... They're, like, sacred, right? Like, you just <laughs> do not eat your cleaners. <laughs> they got a pecking order. And then my final ingenuity point, which I 
mentioned earlier is they are migratory, at least in on the east coast of the U.S. Um, so you'll find them in the warmer months further up north of the east coast. And then when it starts to cool down, they'll come down into the, the southern east coast, like Florida. Sure. So the final category is aesthetics, how they look, how, yeah. how nice they look. Yeah. <laughs> I'm going to 6 out of 10. They're pretty default as far as shark looks go. Sure. This is yeah. your standard issue starter kit yeah. shark. I would have a hard time identifying the shark in the wild. Oh, yeah? Because I, I would have a hard time separating it from other sharks. Whereas if it were a great white shark, it would be easier or you know, a whale shark or something like that. I'm pulling up a picture as you're explaining that. Yeah, I do see. It does look like it does look a lot like a, like a white shark. I see what you mean, though, by it having sort of a shorter and stockier appearance. Mm-hmm. Y- yeah, you're right, though. I, w- I would also probably struggle to tell it apart from a... From a white shark. <laughs> well, not not specifically from a white shark, just sharks in general. Yeah. Like, oh, that could be a reef shark. That could be a, I don't know, something. That's, I'm so <laughs> bad at identifying most things. <laughs> sure. And plus, normally when you see sharks, you're seeing them from like uh, above them. True. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So it's, it's kind of tough to tell. Yeah. So that's exactly why, you know, especially if you are not a professional and not an expert, mm-hmm. if you don't know... The safest bet is to just, you know, mm-hmm. be respectful of it no matter what. I've noticed in video that one shark that looks a lot like a great white shark from above the water surface is a basking shark. Mm. <laughs> oh, my gosh. All the time. People will post <laughs> videos of, like, a basking shark just, like, chilling. Right. And they'll be like, look how close we got to a great white shark. Yeah. And it's like, okay, well, that's because it's not what that is. Speaking so, sort of tangentially related, in this family is a shark called the lesser white shark, by the way. <gasps> <laughs> Which is not the same family as the great white shark, Complete by the way. Dunk. They didn't have to call it that at all. <laughs> Makes sense, though. <laughs> that there is one. That's funny. Uh, in terms of miscellaneous info, talk about their conservation status. So it, they are vulnerable, actually. Oh. As of a 2020 assessment that was released in 2021. Oh, wow. So very recent. Um, declines in habitat quality and over-exploitation are thought to be the causes. That makes um, sense. Yeah. Our waterways are not doing fantastic. And if they depend on fresh waterways, you know, those are the most polluted, right? Because that's where right. development is happening, that kind of thing. So I want to talk about that, go back to the aggression thing. They're so known for that aggression that most aquariums don't have them. Really? Yes. Because huh. if they're in... A tank with other fish it's very likely they will eat them well <laughs> listen you can't make an omelet yeah. without cracking a few eggs and i was trying to think because i've been to what three or four different aquariums and I, I looked it up i don't think any of them had bull sharks i don't think i've ever seen yeah. a bull shark in an aquarium yeah you were saying that you think we've we saw wild bull sharks baby bull sharks maybe because we saw them in the tampa bay mm-hmm. yeah they were little. Yeah. Little ones. They do have, uh, as young ones, they do have black tips on their fins. Oh, okay. I don't remember. Yeah, I don't recall details enough, but the basically we were out um, looking at boats and stuff in the Tampa Bay mm-hmm. over last summer, and we saw the cutest little baby shark just swimming around, gobbling stuff up, gobbling up little fish. It was <laughs> swimming like really close to the surface, though. Yeah. Very cute. Mm-hmm. Did you know baby sharks are called pups? Yes. (laughs) (laughs) That's my favorite thing. (laughs) Uh, My last thing. So this is the likely species that was the culprit of the series of shark attacks that inspired the Jaws book, 
which went on to become the Jaws movie. This is me just now finding out that there was a book. Yes, that it was the movie based on was a based book. On. Really? <laughs> Fascinating. There's a whole plethora of side stories in the book that they cut out for the movie. It was probably a good idea. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, this happened in um, 1916. What? That's yes. so long ago. Yeah. So it happened in 1916 across the span of like 12 days and five people uh, okay. died from sharks. Okay, well, I'll give them that's a lot. Yeah, off the sh- off of New Jersey. And two or three, perhaps, of those happened in a freshwater river. So the thought was, it was at least some of those were probably bull sharks, if not all of them. Sure, because like what else could it be? Great white shark. Oh. So that that's the other suspected species okay so then this book came out in 1974 and then the jaws movie came out in 1975 oh so very rapid turnaround time it's because the movie it's because the book was a hot seller oh sure yeah and the movie sounds kind of (laughs) rushed well that was one of um spielberg's first like big movies right so it found great success but unfortunately caused a huge PR nightmare for sharks in general. <laughs> yeah, I mean, sharks are still recovering from yeah. the public image damage that has been done by the Jaws movie. Yeah. Um, which, big confession, I've never seen it. <laughs> it's a cultural thing. <laughs> I'm really, really sensitive to scary movies. Yeah. Like, I frighten very easily, and especially as a kid. Like, mm. it was a scary movie and about, like, the ocean, which I'm already kind of, like, Oh, yeah. Kinda, uh, yeah, I'm already kind of afraid of ocean stuff, like, in real life. I just never did watch it, and then now I'm at the point where it seems, like, so dated and so far outside of what I would ever watch. Yeah. I've just never bothered to watch it, but I've heard that it, it's drastically inaccurate. Oh, yeah. So first, you know, for the book and movie, they made it a single great white shark. And then actually, I remember as a kid going to Universal Studios and riding the Jaws ride. Oh, wow. <laughs> uh, which is no longer there, but it involved, you know, a boat ride and an animatronic shark in places that Absolutely pops out not. of the water and nope. stuff. Yeah. <laughs> nope. Not there anymore. I think it was placed Harry Potter or something or another, perhaps. Probably. It's all Harry Potter now. <laughs> Um, But yeah, that's the bull shark. Good job, babe. Thanks. Great animal. Let's take a quick break to hear some promos from our friends on the Maximum Fun Network. And we'll be right back and we'll get to my animal. You're in a theater. The lights go down. You're about to get swept up by the characters and all their little details and interpersonal dramas. You look at them and think, that person is so obviously in love with their best friend. Wait, am I in love with my best friend? That character's mom is so overbearing. Why doesn't she just stand up to her? Oh God, do I need to stand up to my own mother? If you've ever recognized yourself in a movie, then join me, Jordan Cruciola, for the podcast Feeling Seen. We've talked to author Susan Orlean on realizing her own marriage was falling apart after watching Adaptation, an adaptation of her own work, and comedian Hari Kondabolu on why Harold and Kumar was a depressingly important movie for Southeast Asians. So join me every Thursday for the Feeling Scene podcast here on Maximum Fun. I'm Lisa Hannawalt. And I'm Emily Heller. Nine years ago, we started a podcast to try and learn something new every episode. Things have gone a little off the rails since then. (laughs) Tune in to hear about low stakes neighborhood drama, gardening, the sordid, nasty underbelly of the horse girl lifestyle, hot sauce, (laughs) addiction to TV and sweaty takes on celebrity culture, and the weirdest, grossest stuff you can find on wikipedia.org. We'll read all of it no matter how gross. (laughs) There's something for everyone on our podcast, Baby Geniuses, hosted by 
us, two horny adult idiots. Hang out with us as we try and fail to retain any knowledge at all. Every other week on Maximum Fun. So, enough of the dire shark talk. What animal do you bring us this week? When you say dire shark, <laughs> do you mean like dire wolves, but sharks? <laughs> That'd be really cool. It would. Let me, let me just put that in my D&D notes real quick. George R.R. R. Martin, I swear to God. <laughs> <laughs> he actually listens to the show. Not a lot of people know that. Uh, this week, I am also... Staying true to our Florida roots here, going into an animal that is iconic of the Florida wetlands. This yes. is the green heron. Yay. The scientific name is Buterides virescens. Beautiful. <laughs> I have I completely made up that pronunciation. Oh. It's it's spelled B-U-T-O. R-I-D-E-S. The species was requested by Lisa Applebaum on Twitter. Thank you, Lisa. And I'm getting my information from the Cornell Lab of Ornithology's website, allaboutbirds.org. It's a wealth of information. If you're not familiar with this bird, a heron, if you don't know what that is, it is a tall wading bird with long skinny legs, a long skinny neck, and a long skinny beak that is very pointy, like mm-hmm. a dagger. Um, their appearance is just generally tall, like everything is very <laughs> vertical with the heron. You might assume, based on the name, that the green heron would be green. It's really not. It's, it's... Sick of this. I know. <laughs> it's the worst. This happens every single week. Um, so its feathers are mostly a blue-tinted gray. But if you look at them in the right light, they have a slight, like, sort of green-shifted iridescence to them. It really does not show up in pictures, but you can kind of get the feel for it if you see them in person in the right light. If you squint your eyes, <laughs> that counts, that counts, I'm calling it green. <laughs> if you look at a green heron through your special 3D glasses, <laughs> you can see the green that shows up on them. Um, but then they have this really beautiful, like, deep red neck. It's mm. like a chestnut color, like, they're on their neck and chest. It's really mostly, like, gray and then this sort of dark red color, but they're called green. Where they didn't choose to go for the more vibrant color. Right? <laughs> I don't know. I don't. I really don't know why they called them green because it's kind of that's okay. It's misleading. But anyway, oh, this is really funny. So the the Wikipedia article describes them as having gray underparts, which is true. Mm-hmm. But I misread that as underpants. <laughs> okay. they had gray underpants, which is an apt description like they do look like they've got little gray boxer briefs on oh yeah i just thought that was funny it's it funny my mistake but it's funny anyway uh so the green heron is actually a really small heron the green heron is only up to 18 inches tall mm. uh, with a wingspan of 27 inches which is 68 centimeters mm-hmm so, yeah, these are really small, especially when you compare them to some of the larger members of the heron family, like the great blue heron, which is one that we have around here pretty often as well. Mm-hmm. Those can be up to four and a half feet tall. Or the largest heron in the world is the Goliath heron. Ooh. I mean, you know they got to give it a name like that, right? It's yeah. the biggest one. And they can be up to five feet tall or one and a half meters. That's a person. I know. That's like a whole dude. <laughs> So, in general, they're very, very tall, but the green heron is actually kind of little for this family. 
Um, the green heron is found in marshes and wetlands throughout North and Central America. They like to wade in shallow water, usually like right at the edge. Mm-hmm. They don't really venture too far into the actual water itself. So you can usually spot them by just looking along the edge of the water mm-hmm. in, in like just about any pond or stream. <laughs> um, they like to stand perfectly still right at the very, very edge of the water. And they just stand there staring at the water and then shoot forward Mm -hmm. and grab something out of the water with that like dart beak. It's really cool. I I think that this like statuesque stillness combined with the hunched pose that they stand in, right? Where they have their neck like retracted. I think it makes them look like a gargoyle. Oh, Like they're standing totally still in this hunched posture. It's a pond gargoyle. (laughs) I think so. Does the the lunge movement all happen in the neck mostly? Yeah, actually, there's some really interesting stuff going on inside oh, their okay. neck that I'll talk about. Their taxonomic family is called Ardeidae. This is the heron family, which contains 64 species of herons, wow. as well as egrets and bitterns. I always struggle with the difference between heron and egret. I do too, ah. and I have great news for you. Oh. Egrets are just white herons. Okay. That's all they are. Great. They're just white herons. <laughs> so all egrets are herons. Oh, it's one of these deals. Yes, it's one of these deals. Okay. So if you see a white one, that's an egret. Okay. Th- which is just a type of heron. Okay. Bitterns are like little guys. They don't have as long necks as, as other herons do, mm-hmm. but that's kind of the whole heron family. So the closest cousins of the herons are the ibises and spoonbills. Oh, Strong family resemblance there, I think, with the spoonbills. Very fun beak shapes. They're really getting creative with the beak shapes in this <laughs> in this whole family. So for effectiveness, I give the green heron an 8 out of 10. All right. I'm going to start off with something that they're able to do that is effectually known as zoop. <laughs> is this the scientific term? <laughs> in the sense that I've seen scientists use it. That counts. <laughs> Not like in papers and stuff. But I would. I've seen them use it on Twitter, and I think that's uh, that's a citation right there, baby. <laughs> I want to see it in a research paper <laughs> with a citation. Figure A. The zoop. <laughs> <laughs> to explain the zoop, if you're not familiar with herons, is that when you first see a green heron, it looks like a squat necklace bird it looks like it doesn't have a neck it Mm. looks like the head is just built into directly into the torso of the bird Uh, the neck is gone so it's kind of shaped like a football with a knife sticking out of the front Mm -hmm. so when they strike their head just shoots forward and then that reveals this really 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 long neck like slinky (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> that just like opens out from inside of the bird um, that it keeps hidden in this sort of like S shape. So it folds into an S shape and then shoots out forward. So when you see it, it kind of unravels. Mm-hmm. It's not a compressing action, like a like an accordion or something like that. Which makes sense. Yeah, they're not like squishing it together. Yeah. It's just folding in an S shape. And it bends at a really sharp angle about halfway down the neck. So the neck goes down from the head. There's kind of a 90 degree turn, right? Where it's like the crook of the S. Mm -hmm. And then it goes back down the rest of the way. This is a characteristic shared by all herons. And it's really interesting because what it actually is, is a modified vertebra 
in their neck. Hmm. So the sixth cervical vertebra in their neck, they actually have 21 vertebra in their neck, unlike mammals, which have seven. Oh. Yeah. So they have tons of bones in there. They're just chock full of bones. (laughs) So this special vertebra is actually longer than the others, Hmm. and it points forward. So it, it kind of like pivots from the rest of the neck. So this gives their neck like a really dramatic bend, which lets it like fold up to collapse. So the function of this S-shaped neck is actually a marvel of physics. Oh. So the kink in the neck acts kind of like a hinge. And the fact that it's elongated, it's kind of like a lever And it having longer length gives them better torque. So if you're trying to like twist a nut, for example, you use a longer wrench if you want to apply more force. Yeah. So it's kind of like that. Mm. Like having the vertebra be longer allows them to apply more force. The best way that I can describe it is have have you ever seen a spear being thrown with an atlatl? Maybe. It's a tool. It was developed in like Paleolithic times. Uh So it's been used for thousands and thousands of years. And it's basically almost like a club with like a hollowed out hook sort of piece at the end where you put the spear into it and then you throw it. This kind of looks like the dog toy throwing. The chuck it. Yes. Yes. Okay. This is the origins of the chuck it. A chuck it is like a a modern day toy version of an atlatl. Okay. Yes. It's also <laughs> called a woomera in Australia. Huh. I feel like that kind of helps you understand the heron's neck better. Because if you look at your arm and you imagine that you're holding this, a, a chuck it basically. Yeah. And then if the thing that you're trying to throw with it is the heron's head, you see how like having that extra piece lets you get a lot more force, just like how it lets you throw the spear farther it also lets the heron shoot their neck really, really fast. Okay. So I watched a really cool video of a green heron catching and eating a crawfish. Mm. Um, and this video was uploaded by YouTube user Nat Bell. And in the video, the heron has caught this crawfish. And crawfish are pretty chunky. It's like the size of the heron's entire head. Yeah. Right? It's it's a big one for, for a little bird, I guess. And... Crawfish, you know, are covered in this hard shell. They have sharp little pinchers, and the crawfish is flailing around trying to like pinch the heron, trying to get away. So the heron has to disarm this crawfish so it can eat it. So, in order to disarm the crawfish, the heron does a lot of grabbing the crawfish from different angles. And then, like, shaking it around. But to grab it from different angles, okay, this heron doesn't have hands. It can't be twisting it around, right. you know? So what it keeps doing is it drops the crawfish, and then it's so fast that it's able to catch it again out of the air at a different angle. Wow. Yeah, it's really impressive. <laughs> and so it, it kept doing that. Like, it kept dropping it to, like, change the angle of its grip, huh. and then shaking it around to pull the claws and stuff off. Oh, so it's literally disarming. Literally disarming, removing the arms from the crawfish. (laughs) (laughs) So, you know, like a crawfish is a pretty formidable prey. You know, if you can get them, I know lots of things eat them, but you got to really bring your A game if you're trying to eat something tough like that, especially if you're a little, a little guy, Mm -hmm. like a green heron. So very high dexterity. Very impressive. I very recently saw this bird with its neck fully retracted for the first time. And I thought, I initially thought it was a different bird. 
Oh, you did. Didn't you think it was a duck? <laughs> or, no, I thought it was something like a, I don't know, a kingfisher or something. Oh, well, we did have a kingfisher. We did have one there. of those. Yeah. I could see why you would think yeah. that. Um, yeah. It, does, it looks like a complete, it does not look like the same animal. Yeah. Fully, it fully retracted. It's just squat and little. I know. It looks like it doesn't have, it, it really looks like its face is just like aligned <laughs> with the top of its body. It's <laughs> hilarious. So like other wading birds, they have these long, thin toes that are really good for both gripping on perches because they do like to perch on like logs mm. or like roots, you know, that are sticking out of the ground or something. So they're good for gripping, but they're also really good for dispersing their weight evenly over a wide area mm-hmm. so that their feet don't sink down into the wet mud. Yep, like yeah. snowshoes. Yeah, like but mud shoes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Lots of wading birds have feet like this. I just find it kind of interesting. Their toes are also just like the tiniest bit webbed. It's like only like the outermost two toes are mm. webbed. And it's just like a little bit, just a little bit. And it, that's so that they can swim for a short distance if they need to. Oh. So sometimes they will actually fully dive into the water. And if they need to get back to the shore, they can swim with their little just the idiotiest little bit the bare minimum <laughs> of webbed toes good for them <laughs> keep your options open <laughs> so when you look at a heron like dead on from mm. the front you can see that first of all they look ridiculous sure like so silly when you see them from the front but you can see when you see them from the front that their eyes are like angled downwards really yeah they're kind of like tilted in such a way that their eyes are pointed down, which is really good for helping them see the fish below them, mm. right? They, they don't really need to be looking up so much. So their whole eyeballs are built to be looking, like scanning down at the water for stuff. And also, you know, think about the fact that most of their predators are probably going to be coming from below them too, like snakes and gators and stuff like that, right? Probably. So they really, their biggest concern is going to be looking below them. I'm wondering if I can sneak up on a heron. <laughs> I, I mean, I've sort of tried in the sense that I try to sneak up on them to take pictures of them, um, but I've never successfully snuck up on a yeah. heron. All that being said, they are a little bit of a glass cannon sort of DPS build. Like, you know, they're, they're really made for like landing a really quick, like critical mm-hmm. hit and then disengaging and leaving. They're really small. They're thin and lanky. They don't have a ton of defenses available to them. They've, they've got their beak and their beak is really knife-like, um, which is pretty good, but they're really vulnerable to predators. The young ones are on the menu for all sorts of predators, like crows and raccoons. Oh. We'll just eat the babies and the eggs also are, are high targets for these things. The adults can even get picked off by larger birds of prey, like hawks, eagles, stuff like I that. I was thinking about that, the, the eyes down thing might uh, yeah, not be great. a detriment to that. Yeah, not great against <laughs> hawks. Around here, they can get snapped up by gators if they're not careful. And this brings me back to longtime loyal listeners of the show will remember our very first episode in which I talked about the American alligator. Mm. And in that episode, I talked about how alligators do this really interesting thing where they'll kind of like gather twigs that they know birds use as nesting material. And they like put it on their head so that the bird will come up to them (laughs) to get this nesting material and then boom there's a gator so gators are pretty good at eating herons (laughs) 
I was looking to confirm that gators do prey on herons. I was looking for like, yeah. you know, a documented evidence of that happening. So I typed alligator eats heron into Google, and the first three results were heron eats alligator. What? <laughs> it's, a, it's this one time, this one video of a great blue heron eating a baby alligator. I feel like I got like an Uno reverse plate on me. Consider yourselves avenged. <laughs> So apparently it works both ways. Such is nature. Yeah. When I think of what eats a heron, I think of an alligator. Yeah. So yeah, that's effectiveness for the green heron. Next category that we rate these animals on is ingenuity. Now for ingenuity, this is it for the green heron. I give them a nine out of 10. This is like a very clever bird. I feel like what they maybe missed out on in size and physical attributes they kind of made up for in very clever stuff first of all i mean this is a big hit for us this is like what we're looking for when we're doing our ingenuity scores tool use perfect yes you love to see tool use um green herons are known for doing this so this is not just like a one-off thing that like somebody saw one doing one time it's like this is all the time they find little bits of stuff. They might use pieces of bread. They might use French fries. Oh, boy. They might use sticks. They might even use their own feathers. And they toss it in the water. And then they wait. And once a little fish comes swimming up to the surface of the water to pick up this little treat that they just left for the fish, then the heron springs forward and catches it. Nice. So they're literally fishing with bait. They're literally spear fishing with bait. That's cool. Yes. And it doesn't even have to be like bait bait. You know, it could be like just random bits and pieces of stuff that they find around that they're like, mm, I'm going to catch fish with that. <laughs> I just, How cool is that? That's they awesome. do it all the time. High success rate. Yeah. Like. Works all the time. Nice. This is not a very common behavior for birds. Like tool use is not common in birds. Yeah. There are some famous examples of tool use in birds, like crows and ravens do it Mm -hmm. all the time. Parrots use tools pretty frequently. But for the most part, it's really not a thing that a lot of birds do. So very interesting, very unique set of skills for the green heron. Especially considering they're limited to to not having hands. Right. Yeah. And especially like, you know, for, for parrots, their feet are very close to their beak, so they can do a lot of interaction and, like, manipulation between their feet and their beak. Mm-hmm. But for the heron, their beak is so far away from their feet right. that they don't really have a lot of dexterity there, like, manual dexterity, I guess. So, yeah, very impressive. They're using actual bait to do their fishing for them, which is very cool. Another really clever and kind of brutal hunting strategy that they have comes into play when they're eating frogs. Green herons have been documented, which is to say there is a YouTube video, (laughs) holding the frog upside down underwater to drown it. Really? Before eating it. There is a very clear video of a green heron doing exactly this. It's on YouTube by a, a user with the username Easy Work. And it's a green heron in this person's backyard. And you can see the heron catch this frog and the frog squirming around. And the heron very deliberately plunges the frog underwater and then just stays completely still while the frog is flailing around and just waits. Huh. And then eats the frog. I have to admit, I did not know one could drown a frog. Right? <laughs> well, I mean, they're amphibians. You know, like they live on the land, right? They don't I live in I, the water. I thought they, I thought they had something akin to 
to, to gills. <laughs> to gills. You're thinking of salamanders, yeah. I think. You're thinking of like larval salamanders okay. that, that live in... I mean, it makes sense because tadpoles have to live in the water, yeah. right? But they over time, they lose their gills when they transition onto land. That makes sense. I see where you were going with that. I see why you would think that. But yeah, you can drown a frog and herons do it all the time. <laughs> <laughs> Another interesting thing they do is that since they have shorter legs than some larger herons, they can't wade as deep. But they will use perches, like uh, mangrove roots that stick mm. out of the water. And they use that to get out further into deeper waters that they wouldn't normally be able to wade into. Smart. Yeah, it is very clever. I feel like they have, they've they come up with some really interesting ways to work around their small size. Mm. Very cool. Last thing for ingenuity is some things I wanted to talk about their mating in reproductive sort of behaviors. Uh, males put on a very cute courtship display for females. Yes. They puff up their feathers and kind of rattle them around. Like they sort of shake and shake their puffy feathers. They hold their wings up. And, like, it kind of looks like a cloak almost and, like, kind of run around in front of a female to really woo her. It's very cute. And then upon success of said courtship, they are egalitarian parents, which you know we love. So the both mom and dad contribute to everything from Mm -hmm. building the nest, incubating the eggs, feeding the chicks. Both parents are involved the whole time. That being said, it's not a very lengthy process. These things are like churning them out. I think they're like the baby is like independent and leaving the nest by like a month out. Yeah. So it's not like a super long haul investment. Um, but you know, you still like to see both parents chipping in. Oh, they are migratory, so the population of green herons that live farther up north migrate seasonally. So they'll come down south when it gets really chilly in the winter, and then when it warms up in the spring, they go back home. They go back up north. But the herons that are along sort of the southern coast of the United States and in Central America, they don't need to migrate because where they live, it's warm all the time. Mm-hmm. So there are uh, resident populations, which means that they are just always there. Year-round. They never leave. They will wander a bit outside of the breeding season. So they have like certain areas where they like to breed. And then outside of the breeding season, they meander a little bit. And they'll go to find like places they might not normally stick around. But um, otherwise, they stick to the same general area. And where we live, we see them year-round. And they are extremely common. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> this is like a like pigeon level of common. <laughs> this is a, they're everywhere. Um, so those are our resident population of green herons. So finally, for aesthetics, I give the green heron. I actually also gave it a six out of ten for some very similar reasons oh, really? as, as you did for the bull shark. You know, some good points. They have that classic dinosaur look. Mm. And I feel like this applies to any heron. They have that sort of intensity about them. Yeah. Where they have those very like piercing yellow eyes and then just those sharp angles and everything looks very dinosaur-like about them. They are dinosaurs. I have to say that. And you can very much see it in a heron. That being said, when you see them from the front, hilarious. It's (laughs) ridiculous. It's like they're so laterally compressed that like it's almost like they're two-dimensional so that when they are facing you directly, it's like they collapse into this sort of like plane. (laughs) Like seeing them along like the front edge and like all of the details disappear and it's just like a weird line of a bird so silly from the front it's not flattering at all 
I also think they could have maybe done more with the colors and the markings, which are like a little on the sort of dull side. Mm -hmm. Maybe this is a bias because I see them so frequently that maybe they look boring to me at this point. Maybe if I didn't see them as often, I would be more impressed. Perhaps. But I see them so frequently that it's like, yeah, okay. That's Mm -hmm. just what that is. They especially don't hold up as great aesthetically when you compare them with some other members of the Heron family. One that I particularly had in mind was the Agami Heron, which has the same general color palette, actually. It's got those, like, bluish, greenish, gray feathers, red chestnut, like, neck and chest. But it has this crest on its head of these long silver feathers that can only be described as Final Fantasy hair. It's so, like, angular and, like, in, like, spikes almost. It is absolutely Final Fantasy or, like, Yu-Gi-Oh! antagonist hair. That's pretty great. Yeah, it's fantastic. It completely puts the green hair into shame, I think, because it looks like the evolved form of the green hair. It just did everything the green heron was doing, but better. (laughs) So uh, once you've seen the Agami heron, the green heron feels a little more underwhelming, which is why I gave it a six out of 10 for aesthetics. By no means is it ugly. The green heron is not an ugly bird at all. I just think they could have done more. Could have pushed it a little farther. Would love to see some innovation there. The other heron is always greener. How long were you sitting on that one? (laughs) A couple tens of seconds. (laughs) (laughs) Anyway, so to wrap things up for the green heron, they are uh, very common. Their population numbers are very healthy, but they are declining due Mm. to, just like you said, the draining and the development of the wetlands that they live in. So habitat loss may threaten them in the future because their numbers are falling. They're still in a good range, but the trend is not great. So it's something to keep an eye on, definitely. They're not listed as a conservation concern yet, but they could be Okay. in the future. Keep an eye on it, basically, is all I'm saying. Okay, I will. Now, where we live, like I said, green herons are everywhere. You can't throw a rock without hitting a green heron here. I see one at least every day, whether it's... In the pond behind our house, which always, there's always a green heron out there. Mm -hmm. You can see them in ditches by the side of the road, you know, like rainwater collects in these ditches, ditches and green herons like to hang out there all the time. They're not like friendly towards other birds. Like they're real loners, Mm. which I think we've seen play out in our backyard. Oh, yeah. So in our backyard behind our house, we have this retention pond that's triangular. So there's like three sort of straight edges to this pond Mm -hmm. and all sorts of birds like to come to this pond lots of herons and for a while there we had like three different types of herons so we had a green heron a great blue heron and a snowy egret that were coming to our pond and we would see the most (laughs) funny little dance that they would do where each one of them had their own like leg of the triangle of the pond (laughs) and they would rotate. So like one would move to the next leg and they would all switch legs at the same time so that none of them was ever like sharing a side of the triangle with them. (laughs) It's like they were all maintaining their own space in the pond, but still like rotating through to get access to the different spots. Right. It was so funny to watch. You can see having like hair and drama <laughs> um, so yeah i i was a little bit worried that with them being so common and so just like 
everywhere. Like, I was worried they might be boring to talk about. But I'm happy to report that I was proven wrong. There's egg on my face, and I couldn't be happier about it because it was such a cool little bird to learn about. That's always a nice surprise. I know. I'm really glad. Good job, hon. Thank you. I'm so glad to have you back, Christian. It's been a delight. Thanks for having me. Of course, on our podcast that we do together. <laughs> and thank you to our listeners. Uh, I, I really hope that you enjoyed what you heard here today. If you did like what you heard here, it would really mean a lot to us if you could leave us a good review on your podcatcher, like Apple Podcasts, if you use it, or Spotify. You can rate podcasts on Spotify now. So if you're listening on Spotify, hit that five stars, I hope. You can connect with us on social media or shoot us an email. My email address is ellen at justthezooofus.com. So send me a message if you have a cool animal you'd like to hear about. We would like to say thank you to Maximum Fun for having us on their network alongside their other fantastic shows like the ones you heard promos for here today. You can go check those out and learn more about the network at MaximumFun.org. And while you're there, we would so love it if you signed up for a membership to support us and the rest of the shows on the network, that would be really nice. Uh, finally, we'd like to thank Louise Ong for our fantastic theme music. And I think that's all we've got today. Thanks y'all. We'll see you next week. Thanks. Bye. Bye. MaximumFun.org. Comedy and culture. Artist owned. Audience supported.